Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Wednesday, January the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. At this stage in the campaign, it seems to me and to a lot of other people, I think that the best, biggest single story of general election 2020 so far is the unexpected resurgence of Sinn Féin. After a pretty miserable 2019, which saw it lose a significant amount of its vote share in local, European and Northern Irish elections, as well as in opinion polls, the party has bounced back to 20% or so in most polls conducted over the last two weeks. Yesterday, Sinn Féin launched its manifesto which included radical commitments on housing, health and other expenditure, along with significant moves on tax, including the abolition of USC for anyone earning less than €30,000, and new taxes on business and on the higher paid. In addition to all that, the party has reaffirmed its objective of securing a referendum on Irish unity within the lifetime of the next doll. So what has been happening with Sinn Féin and why is its message finding such a receptive audience, in particular, it seems, uh, amongst the young? To discuss all of this, I am joined by University College Dublin political scientist Aidan Regan by Jane Souter, Director of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism at Dublin City University and by our own politics editor Pat Leahy. Pat, you first. You were at the manifesto yesterday which was in an art gallery in Temple Bar. Well, it was. I don't quite know what to read into that but uh, it was very well attended and as usual very forceful presentation by Mary Lou MacDonald flanked by Ono Brin, the party's housing spokesman and Pierce Doherty, the... Um, uh, the party's finance spokesman. So, um, and fairly robust questioning, as you'd expect from uh, from the press for half an hour, 45 uh, minutes or so. Coverage of it in the papers this morning, reflecting the fact that immediately, uh, not just that this is a very radical manifesto, by some distance the most radical of the main party manifestos that we've seen launched so far, and also the uh, the the fairly expected critique, I suppose, from Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael in terms of the party spending and tax plans. And, you know, we're bowled over, I suppose, by uh, parties launching documents and manifestos and there's a wave of stuff coming at people all the time. But I think it's important to emphasise, and we tried to do this in the paper this morning, just how radical this plan is and how different it is to the manifestos of the other big parties. It proposes, uh, you know, just to look at, you know, show me, as Joe Biden says, I've said here before, show me your budget, I'll show you where your priorities are. It proposes a huge amount of extra public spending and tax giveaways to those on lower incomes to be funded by huge tax increases on the better off and on businesses and particularly on the bank. So it's of an order of magnitude, I think, different to the uh, to the manifestos of the other big parties. Um, Aidan, a couple of years ago, just when the transition was taking place between Gerry Adams and Mary Lou MacDonald, along with that 
transition in personnel, uh, the broad perception was that Sinn Féin was continuing a journey, which I suppose it had been on for some years, away from extremely radical economic positions as well as on other issues such as the European Union and more towards, uh, if you like, the centrist dad position that it was going to appeal to a, a more middle class voter as well. Has there been a kind of a, a, a twist, a, a turn in that road? I think what they have done relatively successfully is tackle particular issues uh, and have made certain issues a core priority to them and housing being one of them. So they have clearly carved out a certain space that I think Ona Brin in particular uh, becomes a spokesperson for a particularly large catchment of the population of the electorate on their core concern, which is housing. So I think, you know, there is an issues-based approach to this that they seem to have captured. Whether there's anything fundamentally different in terms of their, their, their overall platform, yes, there has been an incremental gradual change. They have, quite frankly, drifted a little bit more to the centre. Um, and you see that with Mary Lou Macdonald in particular. But for me, I think the, the rise in popularity, and we can talk about whether it really is a rise in popularity or whether it is a shift back to the mean, it seems to me that it is very much about issues. Mm. Uh, I, I think... I think what Aidan says is, is correct on the, the issue stuff, but this is not a manifesto, and I can argue that all manifestos are a starting point for coalition negotiations, but taken on face value and looked at on its own merits, this manifesto is not a shift to the centre. It is uh, it is not calculated to appeal to the centrist dads. It is very much a radical document that is that is pitched at those people who want not just change, but very substantial change in how the country is run. And, 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 and at those people who seek a profound economic rebalancing. That's what this document says. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I would agree with that enti- entirely. I mean, it is a left wing manifesto. And therefore, the question, I think that what they have done is, and, and, and what, what I'll be here is curious to people's opinion, they've clearly carved out this the argument that they're the left-wing opposition. Mm. And that's what we and are. they've most definitely done that, Jane, haven't they? Because, I mean, Pat said that it's the, it's the most radical manifesto of the large parties and, you know, it depends how you define the large parties. But if you look at the seven party leaders, for example, who were in the debate the other night, and I'm going to leave out PPP because, with all due respect to them, I don't think they're seeking to enter government after, after the next election. I think they'd probably admit that themselves. But of the other six parties, it's certainly more radical. Uh, it's more radical than the Green uh, proposals for the next five years and it's certainly more radical than Labour and the Sock Dems and obviously than the than the other parties, so they've positioned themselves as the leader of a of a radical left alternative. And I suppose um, that any party manifesto is two things: is the theory of the case, how do you fix the problems which face the country, uh, and the other one is it's a sales pitch to the electorate. What part of the electorate does it appeal to? Oh, well, I think it's it's very clear, and you can see that in the the polls that we've had before. So it's very clearly the under thirty fives. So it's. Uh, the kind of millennial generation and and people younger, those who feel that they've been disadvantaged, those that are on uh, probably part more likely to be on part time precarious contracts, those who can't see themselves ever getting on the housing ladder, those that are paying massive rents, and that's where I think Aidan is correct in terms of the housing thing. You know, I was looking at it uh, very carefully, and it was it was very clear like they had. Um, a huge amount of the 18 to 35 vote across all uh, social classes. Um, and then the, the clear issue where the 18 to 35 saw them as strongest was on housing. So if those 18 to 35 year olds come out and if they vote on housing, then, you know, I think that Sinn Féin is only perhaps even at the beginning of its wave that it might be going up further. And I'm not sure that the the kind of attacks on Sinn Féin about uh, 
other issues that I'm sure we'll come to for you know, anti-EU or the northern question or the general economic thing. I'm not sure that the, the under 35s are going to be particularly concerned about that. I think we can see that the kind of um, Ireland doing reasonably well economically is kind of uh, almost taken for granted in, in that age group. So the fact that Fine Gael is strongest on that uh, doesn't really matter. You could see uh, Leo Varadkar at the debate the other day uh, was constantly saying, but you won't be able to afford that if the economy isn't strong. But, you know, it just didn't go anywhere. You couldn't see it even going anywhere with the with the audience. So I think that strong policy thing, that strong thing for that generation is, is what's driving it. Let's talk a little bit about that age differential, Aidan, because this is something we've seen in a number of elections in other countries as well, an increasing divide between the way the old vote and the young vote. There's always been a bit of a difference, but there seems to be an increasing difference now. And we saw it in the, in the, in the UK election when under 35 people voted for Labour, but they were significantly outvoted by, uh, by over 50s and particularly over, over 65s. Um, Sinn Féin doesn't have to face the same challenges as Jeremy Corbyn does. He, they don't need to get to 40%. They only need to get to the low 20s to have a successful election, don't they? And a big difference between Sinn Féin and Jeremy Corbyn is that Sinn Féin actually do have their core anchor in, you know, working class communities, right? What they're doing is branching out beyond that, which I think is interesting. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn was trying to do the opposite, if you like. His anchor was very much in, you know, urban metropolitan graduates in relatively higher income household brackets. So Sinn Féin are branching, and that's unusual, comparatively speaking. It's not that normal across other Western European countries to see a left party being able to build a relatively broad coalition today between urban millennials uh, who are typically graduates living in cities and those who would be classically uh, defined in the, as the old working class, which of course Sinn Féin is competing with Fianna Fáil for. But I mean, yeah, 20%, if that's what it translates into, um, comparatively speaking to the rest of the rich democracies of the world, that would be a fairly solid showing for a left party. If if they get there, of course, because there has been a disjunction in the past, Pat, between how Sinn Féin perform in polls and how they actually perform on on election day. Um, do you think there is a surge? Do you think that they're appealing to parts of the electorate that they didn't get to before? They were kind of at this sort of number in the weeks before the 2016 general election as well. Uh, look, every election is different, but we look at, you know, previous elections for a guide to what may be likely to happen in, uh, in in future elections. And certainly that trend, was, as we've discussed here before, is pretty well established that Sinn Féin tend to underperform their opinion polls. And there's a couple of reasons, I think, for that. I think they're, in, they're related to demographics, that Sinn Féin tend to be best supported in those cohorts of the population that are least likely to actually come out and vote on, uh, on the day. And the other thing is that when Irish elections get to decision time, Lots of voters, not all of them, but lots of voters tend to look for a government. And in the past, they haven't seen Sinn Féin as real contenders for that government. And I think that that is one of the things that Mary Lou Macdonald has tried to overcome in her leadership. So everything she does in this campaign is pitched towards government. She's trying to elbow her way into the debates and so forth. And all that is about being seen by voters at the end of the campaign as a viable contender for government. I think the surge argument, I think there's no doubt that Sinn Féin have probably been the most 
kind of exciting and vital part of the campaign thus far. But I think the uh, the surge description is somewhat overdone because there's no doubt that the, the three or four opinion polls that we've seen published, including this paper thus far, have, sh- have shown a big jump from, from their last poll, the last comparable polls in November. But last November was an unusually bad time for Sinn Féin. Now, they've had a difficult time all last year and the, the end of the previous year. But last... Uh, I was just looking back on 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 the polls from uh, from last uh, October November, which was a time that Sinn Féin was under intense political pressure, not just on Stormont actually, but if you go back and read the coverage of the time, Brexit was a huge story in Westminster at the time, and they were getting absolutely flayed in the doll and in the media for not taking their seats and perhaps making a vital difference in in Westminster. So they were getting like 11, 16, 14, 17 in opinion polls around that time. But actually, if you look over a bro- over a, a longer period of time, so in our polls, uh, Ipsos polls for this paper, the average score for Sinn Féin between the last election and now has been 19 and a quarter percent. So if you take that, if you, once you understand that, then 20, 20% or 21% doesn't really look like the sort of surge that it has been described. Does that mean 2019 was the aberration and this is the reversion to the mean? I think there's, a, I think, I think there's an element of that in it. Now, there's no doubt that Sinn Féin was under intense political pressure last year and that was reflected in the opinion poll, poll scores. And the elections. But I think, and, and in the elections, in the presidential election the, uh, the, the, uh, the year before that. But I think that to some degree, there's no doubt that Sinn Féin's having a good election campaign so far. But to some degree, I think those early opinion poll scores have been over-interpreted as a surge when in fact to some degree, as I say, the reversion to the mean. One of the things, Jane, that then strikes me about that is that it's only a few months ago because of those very opinion polls that we were talking about a defensive election for Sinn Féin that Mary Lou Macdonald, I think it was said in the studio that if she could come back with the same amount of seats as she was going out with, she'd bite your hand off for that. Now we're in a somewhat different environment and people are saying, well, you know, they certainly hold and they may perhaps gain a couple of seats. But when you look at the realities on the ground and the number of candidates that they've run, um, it's quite difficult for them to build even on a you know, on a successful election result they're defending seats where uh, in places like Kerry where where people have retired they've lost defectors like Pater Tobin I don't see a lot of places where they could pick up four, five, six, seven seats No that's it so it's interesting to see where the where the actual support is and most of it is actually in uh, Dublin and rest of Leinster and they're actually relatively uh, weak in uh, in Connacht Ulster and uh, in Munster in in comparison, and then they only have 42 candidates in the field. So I haven't gone through, you know, every constituency, but it's hard to see a lot of those constituencies in um, in Dublin and the, and the rest of Leinster have other left candidates from the other uh, smaller parties and so on. So there probably isn't as much room for them to pick up. But I think one of the interesting things, one of the differences this time with their... Um, with their strength, um, it was really notable in the um, the other competitor poll d- to yours. I'm not sure if your uh, poll had the same one, but um, while it was 19% overall of like likely voters, it was only 16% male, and it was in the low 20s female, which is a big change. Which is a big change because Sinn Fein is is normally driven by younger uh, urban working class uh, men or older. Republican um, 
sort of working class men. So this kind of shift to younger women is kind of a new thing. And that's that's one thing that makes me kind of wonder about what is actually going on with it. But whether those women stick with that, whether they have the candidates to vote for in the constituencies where they're very strong, um, I'm not so sure. Another thing which has been a break on Sinn Féin making electoral breakthroughs beyond a certain point, Aidan, has been their sort of transfer toxicity in the past, that they haven't picked up transfers, that they've lost out on the last seat a lot of the time. Is there any uh, opportunity for that to change? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it may well be the case that they have become more transfer friendly. So, for example, if you're voting Green or Social Democrat or Labour, maybe now you're thinking about Sinn Féin for your number two. Whereas, you know, the assumption might be that might go to the more liberal side of Fine Gael or something. But maybe Sinn Féin are going to be in a position to pick up a lot of those second transfers now if the smaller parties uh, begin to get eliminated during. the So let's who knows. But I think the point about gender is interesting um, and it might be related to the fact that at the national level, at least on the radio, on the TV, Sinn Féin has a very clear uh, female presence and uh, much stronger than most other parties. Um, And I think there is a big difference between Sinn Féin at the national level and Sinn Féin at the local level. I think they got punished in the local elections because they were not perceived to be solving problems, whereas Fianna Fáil traditionally have always been perceived as problem solvers. So I think the average local uh, TD or the local constituency (laughs) worker is a bit different to, say, the the, the big profile performers that they have in Pierce Stadion or Bryn, Mary Lou MacDonald. So maybe that that, that national thing is carrying them very strongly. That is interesting, isn't it? Because they do have a strong national bench in a way that, to be fair, Fianna Fáil don't have. Uh, Mihal Martin has been very much the kind of the the lone ranger at a lot of the Fianna Fáil presentations, Pat. And uh, looking at Miriam Lord being pretty scathing about the the Labour launch yesterday and uh, Brendan Howland flanked on one side by by Joan Burton uh, and the other side by Joe Costello um, and and contrasting that with Pierce Pierce Doherty and Ona Bryn. Vigorous youth of the Sinn Féin front bench, I think, uh, is what she was suggesting. Yes, um, and... I, I, you know, and I think that's something that Sinn Féin are very keen to keen to stress. As Aidan says, Owen O'Brien has a very strong brand on uh, on housing. Um, you know, you, you you will have heard that he has written a book on uh, on housing. So perhaps not the book on housing, but a book on. Uh, on I think housing. he'd say it's the book. But yeah, right. uh, but um, and 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 I think that. I think that if you look at the, and this uh, I think is part of that broadened appeal both to women, but also the the diminished transfer toxicity uh, that that I think we are likely to see, and that is not something that is, happens overnight. It's a process, and will continue. But if you look at the Sinn Fein offering of four years ago, you know, with Jerry Adams uh, out front. The party looks very different now. It looks younger. It looks obviously more female. And it looks a, a, a bit more like the electorate that it is trying to appeal to than it did previously. And I think that is part of what is paying dividends for them and will pay dividends for them in the election. Uh, just to go back to that point made earlier about the constituencies. And, you know, you must always be conscious of the importance of the local contest when you look at Irish elections. But having said that, if Sinn Féin get 20% in the election, they will win a scatter more seats. Like, that's a mathematical fact. And uh, so I don't think we should lose sight of that either. I think the question is, 
what happens to that lump of support that Sinn Féin clearly have now? That's the question for them in the last 10 days of the campaign. How do they hold on to it? And the question for the other parties is, how do we undermine that? Is Sinn Féin a populist party? Oh, I think so. Owner Bryn has even wrote uh, or written another kind of tractor short book called In Defence of Populism. So um, Owen would uh, would very clearly claim that Sinn Féin is a populist party, but he would make the case that it's a left populist party, that it's an anti-elite populist party rather than a right-wing anti-outgroup, in other words, anti-immigrant kind of populist party. And I think with this with this manifesto, you know, there's literally something for absolutely everybody. You know, I defy anybody to read the headline the headlines of the of the manifesto and not go, oh, that would be good for me on childcare, or that would be good for me on USC, or that you know, that mm. would be good for me as a farmer. There's literally something for, for everybody, everybody in, in the in, in, in the audience. But in in fairness to the manifesto, it shows how it will pay for all these yeah. promises as well, and it is internally coherent in that respect. And how it will pay for those is by a kind of a massive transfer of wealth, if you like, from uh, from corporates, uh, from businesses, from the banks, from better off people in society to those people who are likely to vote for Sinn Féin. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's quite straight up about that. Um, it's- is populism a, a useful term? Aiden? Yeah, I mean, see, the thing is, populism is a term that, that I've got quite popular, <laughs> and it, it's increasingly a term that's used as a shorthand to describe the nativist, authoritarian turn that you see on the right in particular. But as Jane said, there has always been a kind of left populism, which was focused very much on anti-austerity measures, for example, during the crisis. And, you know, la casta in, in the Latin American countries and the elite, the economic elite. And, you know, Sinn Féin, to a certain extent, captured that, but not nearly to the same extent as somebody like Paul Murphy does. So their discursive uh, kind of story, the discursive strategies they use are not quite, you know, Paul Murphy-esque, but they are, you know, they could be taken from a Bernie Sanders type approach. Mm-hmm. Now, it is different in the sense of... They're, they're, their their core vote is coming from the same cohort of peoples that in other European countries are turning to right-wing populist parties. And that's an interesting observation because not many countries have the capacity to generate a left populism because they don't have a nationalist, patriotic, republican story to tell. Sinn Féin do. So they kind of block off that nationalist ability of the right to carve into their vote. Now, maybe not inevitably, but at this point in time, they're able to do it. Is it a sort of kind of economic populism? Yeah, it is. I mean, and as you say, if you look at the manifesto, it's quite clear that they're saying, we've done our analysis. We know that middle-income Ireland really is those between 30 to 35,000 euros. We're going after those votes and anything below it. We're not particularly interested in those who earn above 90, 100,000. They're the ones who are going to pay more taxes. The interesting thing in the manifesto is they specify quite clearly a large part of the revenue that's going to pay for their pretty high expenditure commitments is coming from claiming back the capital loans for intangible assets that the corporate sector has managed to reduce over the past few years. How that will work, I've no idea. But it certainly allows it to tell a story that they're going after big corporates. Jane? Um, Yeah, I think Cliff Taylor had a piece yesterday about that, about the taxing of IP, and he questioned whether 
obviously at the moment the Department of Finance will say, yeah, if you tax IP of the multinationals at that, that's how much money you're going to get. IP is intellectual property and patents and all and those kind of rights and that all tech that companies kind of hold thing. and make yeah, yeah, um, Sort of stuff that can be written in a set of accounts to be in Ireland yeah, or to be in Singapore. And then or obviously if you do it, then next year they'll remove it to Singapore. So you might only have it for one year. So that's kind of a that is a, that's a kind that of is, a problem I think, with a potential it. Hole yeah. in the numbers because it's an awful lot of money in the numbers of seven hundred twenty-two yeah. million. Yeah. It makes it's the biggest single contribution to the tax to to the tax raising that pays for the other stuff, the giveaways in the manifesto and the investment in public services. Yeah, you couldn't. I mean, it gets, you could not claim that back after five. Over every, it's not an, sure. It's not something that's accumulative over five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Department of Finance have already reduced or brought back the eighty percent rate. I think in the 2017-2018 finance uh, budget. But without getting overly technical, I don't think Sinn Fein particularly care <laughs> that they're not able to kind of claw that back every year. It does allow them to say we're going after the big tech. So it's companies. a signal. It's, it's, it's a, a signal. signal. It's, it's what a it's signal. about. Because that then leads to the question of if Sinn Fein has the most radical program of all the major parties, and if Sinn Fein says overtly that it wants to be in government and it doesn't even need to be the largest party, um, this manifesto, I would have thought, looking at it, makes it very difficult for it to go into coalition, certainly with either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. I mean, there's a Absolutely, there's an ideological chasm, isn't there? Well, if you go in as a junior partner, so it'll depend very much on the numbers, then you end up like the the Labour Party, you've got all these promises and you're not going to be able to deliver on them. I suppose they're hoping that that it didn't work that well for Labour. So um, I suppose it depends how many they they actually bring up and then, you know, can they go in almost as as an equal partner? I suppose that's probably what they're thinking. Even as an equal partner, would it be possible for the ideology of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael to find an accommodation with these measures? Well, they could probably do it on housing, you know. So you could probably, you know, go in Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin and put Ona Bryn as, in as Minister for Housing and go pretty much with what you've said in the Sinn Féin manifesto for, for housing. I could see that working. But you're probably not going to be get to be uh, Minister for uh, for Finance and do all your tax measures. You might not get to be Minister for Social Welfare and put up the social welfare payments. So, you know, it'll just depend on the numbers and, and which portfolios you manage to get, I um, suppose. I don't think there will be a meaningful coalition discussion between Sinn Féin and either of the two mm. big parties. And it's not just about this, it's about the United Ireland question because while, to a large degree, all policy is tradable in an Irish coalition negotiation and everybody everybody knows that now. Hugh was right that there's a chasm between this and the, the two big parties. But I don't think it would be impossible for at some stage in the future a Sinn Féin party standing on a very left-wing manifesto to do uh, a coalition deal with, with one of the big parties. But I don't think it's going to happen this time. And one of the reasons, the principal reason for that is that Sinn Féin, there's two parts to this, to the, the Sinn Féin programme. One is the the uh, an economic left-wing one. But the other is the United Ireland agenda, which is at least as important to many Sinn Féin members and activists as the economic stuff. And it's and first they require, in the manifesto. They require a white paper on Irish unity. I, I, I believe Sinn Féin, uh, a Sinn Féin minister in the Department of Foreign Affairs to advance the, the United Ireland agenda, a constant push on... Uh, the British government to call uh, a referendum, a forum to prepare for United Ireland. Co- there would be constant 
visits and tick-tacking between uh, Sinn Féin ministers in the Stormont Assembly and Sinn Féin ministers in the Irish government. And I don't think that either of the two big parties are prepared to concede that or are remotely ready for it. And I think because of that, they won't let the negotiations start because they will not want them to break down on the United Ireland question. Yeah, I think so. And I think that a lot of the um, the civil service are very concerned about that. So the next five years are obviously, you know, going through kind of Brexit. There's a changing relationship between the, the, the North. There's kind of whether the uh, Good Friday Agreement holds or whether it has to be changed because of different things. And I think they would see the Sinn Féin and government in Dublin wouldn't be seen as a as an honest or even a, a kind of just vaguely dishonest broker that maybe Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would be seen as, they'd be seen as something else entirely to the unionist community. So Mary Lou Macdonald as Tánaiste and Minister for Foreign Affairs seems a, seems a distant prospect on, on that analysis. What, what do you make of that, Aidan, the whole, I mean, the nationalist element? <coughs> Again, with the European comparison, the only comparison I can think of, and it's probably pretty tenuous, is, is, is the, some Catalan parties, it's a Cat- left Cat- nationalist. Catalonia, the Scottish Nationalist Party, arguably, so Scotland, Catalonia, other regions, if you like, in different parts of Europe. But I think, you know, all politics takes place in time. And let's say that, you know, Jane and Pat are correct that Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael won't go near Sinn Féin, not even open up negotiations with them. On the basis of the current polls, unless there's a massive surge for Labour, the Social Democrats, and a bigger surge again for Greens, what you're looking at, therefore, is another confidence and supply arrangement between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Let's say it's Fianna Fáil in government and Fine Gael in opposition. That's an open goal right, for Fianna Fáil. That's handing Sinn Féin the complete opposition, right? It, 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 is, it is and it isn't though and I think that's what the party would like. The, the real dream for Sinn Féin actually is a grand coalition between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael which is what they sort of assumed would happen last yeah. time but they were wrong-footed by the Confidence in Supply Agreement. A grand coalition has the two big parties in government and hands the leadership of the opposition to Sinn Féin in a way that they just didn't really have yeah under confidence and supply. Now, whether that operation is repeatable or not depends on the numbers and depends on the post-election landscape and the willingness of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael to go into another uh, confidence and supply agreement. But there's no doubt that I, I think Sinn Féin probably knows it's not going to be in government after this election, but what it really wants in terms of its strategy for the future would be a grand coalition. And I would be willing to bet, I think, at this point in time, if that were indeed the case, then the following election, we're probably looking at a Sinn Féin-led government. There is another element to this, which is the suggestion that's often made by Sinn Féin's opponents that its elected politicians must refer, maybe sometimes defer, to an unelected, shadowy leadership. We ran a story by you, Pat, on Monday evening, just as the leaders' debate was beginning on RTE about the pledge Sinn Féin TDs, including Mary Lou Macdonald herself, have signed, that they will be guided by instructions from the party's ruling body, the Ard Corla. Sinn Féin have responded that that's no different from how other parties work. And you asked a question about that at the manifesto launch yesterday. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think this this line of interrogation of Sinn Féin has gained a lot of traction. There has always been, because of the history of the Republican movement, because of party support for the IRA, because of the influence of, uh, of senior Republican figures who were 
you may or may not have been on the IRA Army Council and exercised some authority over Sinn Féin. This has always been a, a line of interrogation into Sinn Féin. It's been turbocharged, I think, since the Cash for Ash inquiry revealed that the Sinn Féin Minister for Finance, Martina Millor, had emailed senior Republicans in Belfast apparently seeking permission to introduce restrictions uh, on the scheme. And just to be clear, when you say senior Republicans, you don't mean people in any elected positions or administrative positions officially within the party? No, I mean people who had previously been senior members of the IRA. I think it's pretty well uh, it's pretty well uh, accepted. And I think, you know, this, again, this line of interrogation has become more prominent in recent years, possibly due to, you know, some element of, of sexism when Mary Lou Macdonald became leader. It's believed that really must be Jerry and the Belfast Godfathers still pulling the strings on that. I think there's an element of sexism in that. But it's a legitimate, to me, it's a legitimate line of inquiry, not just given the history of Sinn Féin, but also because of that clear evidence in the Cash for Ash inquiry. And the party's been a bit prickly about it now. We've asked, Obviously, we asked Sinn Féin about it. I asked Mary Lou McDonald about it again yesterday. And I was asking her, you know, if the party was in government, you know, would it continue to be subject to the directions? Would its ministers continue to be subject to the directions of the Ord Corla? Would they discuss government matters with the Ord Corla? Would they discuss government matters that weren't in their own departments with uh, with the Ord Corla? And her response was, look, of course, parties take advice. Parties discuss things. Which parties is true. take advice from one another. Of course, of course, she said, the Taoiseach discusses government business with his parliamentary party on a Wednesday night. Also true. But interestingly, she did say, but there is a line. There is a line there between your role as a government minister and your obligations to the party. Now, she didn't elaborate on that, but she did say it a couple of times that there was a line there. I suppose there has to be a line around cabinet confidentiality if you're going to stay on the right side of the law. But But what about the the, the broader question, though, Aidan? I mean, we had a a chat a couple of weeks ago about the, the, the movement of the Workers' Party into Democratic Left, into government, and in some ways that trajectory is quite sim- similar in terms of the way that party was run for a while and, and then it changed. I mean, is it a legitimate concern that it's a not 100% Democratic Party? Some of the things Patrick Tobin was saying about constituency workers being imposed on TDs and then essentially telling them what to do. We, there was an unusually high number of accusations of bullying and people leaving the party. It's, it seems a little bit different in the way it works than the other main parties in the country. The honest answer is I don't know, right? Uh, maybe I'm of that generation that haven't probed enough into that and have not experienced enough of that to be able to begin to question at a deeper level whether it's any way structurally different. I mean, I take the word of what everybody else says. There's something, there is probably something not quite the same, but that's precisely for the reason you just outlined. They're on a particular trajectory of change like any other political party in this state has been in the past. Um, Again, it's just about time. Um, But I would point out as well that, you know, business and politics are very closely related. There's a very close interconnection between those two. All the time, politics is is seeping in influence from external sources. Now, I'm not making a comparison here between the ability of big business and big capital to influence government policy, but there's always influence somewhere, right? And if it is the case that Sinn Féin take influence internally within their party from senior Republicans up in Belfast, that's clearly a problem. But it's a problem all through politics that people are getting influenced from unelected uh, people.
I think that's a very fair point. And, you know, the chief executive of any one of the major banks in the country can ring up the Minister for Finance on his mobile and say, look, I need a meeting about this and he will get a meeting, you know, that day or, or, uh, or, or the next day. And there is influence from outside quarters on politics. And the only guard for the public interest in that instance is transparency and full disclosure. And to some extent, we have that with Freedom of Information Act and so forth with regard to, uh, with regard to commercial influence on, uh, on government. Not entirely. Not entirely. Not entirely is right. But there are mechanisms there to, uh, that are designed to recognise that threat to the public interest and to mitigate it to some degree. But we don't have those with uh, influence from whatever quarters in the Republican movement on Sinn Féin. Yeah, I just wonder the extent to which this is actually a salient point for the 18 to 35s who are really concerned about housing, who feel they're being ripped off on the rent and who feel they're never going to be able to buy a house. You know, I think they're looking at Sinn Féin, they're seeing that, that's where their vote is going. And this kind of, the the focus on this, while it's really important, I'm not sure that if the other parties train all their focus on that in the next week, it's going to be the thing that's going to shift that kind of generational vote for that we're see, that we're seeing mm. for Sinn Féin. You know, I think that's something that they'll probably see as something that's more to do with their parents' generation than their own um, immediate concern. So let me ask, ask you all fine, final point. Um, the real politic of this, it seems to me, is we're seeking to elect a new government in the, in the, in, in the next all. And should the Sinn Féin success, which the polls are showing, prove to be the case, well then... The dream of Michal Martin, which was probably to construct a coalition with the Greens and parties of the of the centre left, will not come to pass because he won't be able to get anywhere near the the, the eighty seats he requires. There'll be no hope of Fine Gael doing something uh, anything similar either. So that'll be the main outcome of this uh, of this Sinn Féin resurgence or reversion or whatever it is. Is that we're back into the same discussion that we will that we had after the election in twenty sixteen? Yeah, like if if Pat is right that we're into just a reverse confidence and supply. You could see at the debates, you can see in kind of discourse on social media, the harm that that did to Fianna Fáil, that it's just not able to properly distance itself from the unpopular uh, policies of Fianna Gael. And if you have that again, that Fianna Gael then won't be able to distance itself from there's always going to be some unpopular policies of, uh, of Fianna Fáil then uh, I think Aidan is right that if Sinn Féin isn't in this time, it'll really be a leader of the opposition and it'll, uh, you know, then it's it's only a matter of time. So I know the larger parties see this as holding the centre, but I think it's uh, very much a kind of a time-limited strategy. And on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks to Jane, Pat and Aidan. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to JJ Vernon on the desk. Remember, you can subscribe to us on all the usual podcast platforms or you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are most welcome. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can usually find us on Twitter. Don't forget, we'll be posting our election daily podcast later this evening and that'll be showing up in your feed later. So keep an eye out for that and talk to you soon.